Bienvenidos al podcast de Latino Founder Hour. Each week we invite you to spend an in-depth hour with us as we speak with a Latino startup founder from somewhere around the world. Aquí conocerás esas historias de éxito y fracasos, retos personales y lecciones aprendidas. And we have fun. We're live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Tune in at startupradionetwork.com. O en versión podcast después del show. Escucha. Listen. Aprende. Learn. Y emprende. Launch. Bienvenidos al episodio 140 de Latino Founder Hour. Los saluda Edgar Navas, fundador de Clica. Y hoy nos, nos, eh, nos acompaña Luis Pérez desde San Francisco, California, fundador de Remove. Luis, ¿cómo estás? How are you doing? How are things in San Francisco? Thanks for having me on. No, thanks for coming to the show, man. We're really excited. And, um, you know, we were just chatting offline, you know, before the show came in. And we, we got a lot of things in common. You know, I think we're going to make a couple, a couple of new friends. And it's all, I, I'm always happy to, to meet new friends, you know, especially now that we can see each other. But, uh, well, yeah, no, welcome, Luis. Just tell, tell me a, a little bit about, you know, where, you know, where are you coming from? Who are you? I mean, that's what we like to start, you know, from the Absolutely. very, very beginning of the book. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm uh, originally from, I was born and raised in Venice, in Caracas, Venezuela. Um, you know, one of three siblings. I have two um, younger sisters uh, also in, in the U.S. now. Uh, and I was there through high school. I ended up, um, you know, moving to the U.S. for college and decided to study uh, computer engineering and uh, went to Michigan without ever visiting Michigan and not knowing what the those fun Michigan winners were going to be about. But um, I loved it. I mean, I was um, an engineer at heart. I mean, I loved building things. Um, and then I graduated from Michigan in 2001. I was okay. originally going to New York to work with a technology consulting company that was like very popular at the time, helping dot coms. Um, and then, uh, you know, the economy started going down and then 9-11 uh, happened. Uh, okay, and yeah. I actually got laid off a week before I started. Uh, oh, wow. which was, uh, yeah, it was crushing. I mean, everyone else was going through much worse. So, yeah. but I mean, I was still in Asia, so I was desperate. Um, I, I was going around trying to find any type of job. Uh, I was fortunate. I ended up, um, getting a job. I was, since I couldn't go to New York, I ended up going to Miami. Um, and I got a job at Morgan Stanley there, but the problem is that the economy was bad. So they didn't really have a job in the, um, uh, as one of the brokers. So they hired me as a receptionist. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it was actually myself and, 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 a, and a girl from Cuba that had graduated, graduated from University of Chicago. So her and I would shift, would essentially like uh, share the receptionist duties at the office. And that's what we would do. We would go around and, you know, serve coffee to the office. But I mean, we had a job, which was, which felt great. Yeah. Um, the challenge then is that the economy kept them going down and in particular the Argentinian economy. So about eight months into it, they decided to shut down that office as well. So, you know, Oh, wow. Eight months into my professional career, I've been laid off twice. twice. Yeah. Uh, then worst of all is that I only had about a month left in my visa before if I didn't get a job and get sponsored, I would have to return to Venezuela. So um, I went, I was going nuts. I ended up looking for any type of job and I was fortunate to land a job at a company called the Ingram Micro, okay. uh, which is also Miami, which is the, one of the world's largest, the, the world's largest logistics, technology logistics company. Uh, and in there, they hired me to essentially create a, 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 an intelligence department that would analyze pricing trends. So this was 2001, 2002. Um, and the, uh, the big question that they had is like, how is the internet going to affect pricing? 
Um, oh, so wow. it was a big undertaking which I didn't yeah. fully answer, but I did get I did get us a, a lot of information in terms of like being able to know how pricing by inf- by competitors were you know whenever they change their pricing online we need, we need to change our pricing. So yeah. I didn't get you know HD level analysis, but it was it was quite helpful, and especially for a 22 year old to be able to build up a department from scratch. Um, then about, yeah. Huh? Yeah. From, from scratch. scratch, I was the only yeah. person. And then I, it was myself, and then I ended up setting setting up little groups in, uh, and this is for Latin America. So I had my a little team in in in, um, in Miami, and then in Brazil, Chile, and uh, and Mexico. Okay. Um, and then about a year and a half later, uh, the old technology consulting firm that had hired me originally out of college, um, you know, um, called me back, and they're like, hey, you know, things are looking good, so they rehired me, and they actually sent me to work uh, at Goldman Sachs in New York. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. So I, it, it was really cool experience. I mean, the challenge was that I was technically a consultant. So I worked like a banker, but I got paid like a consultant, uh, which is not the best math, but yeah. it was an amazing experience. Honestly, it was really, 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 really good for me. Uh, and this there, was during, I, the, the, during the boom, t- well, during the preceding boom times for the real estate market. and Exactly. So it was in the go-go years and in Wall Street, you know, real estate, everything was going crazy. So it was incredibly fun. Um, then in 2005, I decided to go pursue my MBA and I went to uh, Warden in Philadelphia and I uh, loved my experience there. I mean, it was for someone like me that I came like, you know, I didn't have many connections. I didn't really have uh, much of our real resume. It really helped me um, open doors. I mean, and why, why did why, why did you decide to to go for an MBA? Because you said 2008, like during the recession, or this is before it was 2005. Before, oh, before oh 2005. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. a couple of years before the recession, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, to me, I pursued it because I thought. I mean, for me, whenever I went to do anything, I was just another Luis Perez. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, I and trust me, I know 24 Luis Perez's, <laughs> uh, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> Uh, but it, it was a way for me that I thought I could actually highlight myself and like really try to like, it, you know, oh, you know, this is Luis Perez. Oh, he went to Warden and it would actually open some doors and, um, and it helped. I mean, otherwise, you know, it was, it, it, I felt it was hard for me to kind of really open, open up doors in the professional environment. So I thought the business school would do that. And I was fortunate enough to like, you know, get accepted to a top business school. And, um, it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, not just what I learned and the resume, but the friendships that I build. Yeah, the um, connections. Yeah. yeah, especially nowadays, you know, f- almost 15 years on the line. I mean, a lot of my classmates now have, you know, have been very successful. And like, you know, whenever I need help there, they've been there. So that, that's been a phenomenal experience. Um, then I graduated in 2007 and decided to go to, I guess not Wall Street, but went back to New York to work at a hedge fund. Okay. Uh, which was an opportune time to go into full finance in New York. Uh, because as you know, right after the recession happened, and yes. uh, that was a crazy experience. I mean, because we were, I was, I was actually on the distressed desk for the hedge fund, and distressed is any company that has that's in bankruptcy or that has a chance of bankruptcy. So we were investing in those companies, okay, um, okay. and as you know, pretty much everything became depressed. Absolutely, so, yeah, it was a crazy time. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, it was scary. I mean. I ended up, I mean, as things started happening, I remember when like Lehman went down and my one of my friends got let, let go at Lehman and he like emailed me. He's like, hey, Luis, if you have, uh, if you know any opportunities, you know, I'm interested, like help me out. And I'm like, absolutely. Uh, and I'm like, great, you know, I'm sending down his resume. And then like the next day is someone else and then someone else. And then suddenly I had like, like 
50, 60 of my friends were all laid off. I was like, I don't have anyone else to send resumes to. Um, and uh, I, I like put together my, I had my, and I swear to God, I had like my little bag of everything in my office and I had it in my backpack underneath my desk because every single day I went into the office thinking I was going to get laid off for like two and a half years. But you didn't. You didn't. No, you, I didn't. I Surprisingly, okay. I survived. Um, I mean, afterwards, the, with the with the Volcker rule, we ended up they did end up shutting down the hedge fund because the hedge fund was part of a larger bank, and uh, now the bank could not manage the hedge fund, so the hedge fund was getting shut down, and the prop desk was getting um, uh, spun out. And I was like, okay, this is done for me. I had always been very passionate about starting a company. Uh, I mean, I tried out of undergrad, and obviously tried to do that right when I graduated from undergrad, which was two thousand and one, right when the dot com burst. So that actually didn't work either. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, and my other problem had been my visa. Um, yeah, you, you, I, you couldn't say you needed a sponsor. Yeah, and, uh, and that is always a challenge. And it's, it's it, I mean, starting a company is already so hard. And if you have to also deal with the loopholes of like, you know, making sure that you can be here like legally, legally and, yeah. and, and pursue it, it's, it's just even more work and more stress to doing it. But, you know, you do it. You know, Absolutely. starting a company is about grit. It's just one of the many obstacles. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's one of those things that it just makes you stronger. Absolutely. Man, but what, what a ride, dude. Seriously. You, yeah. you, you've been, you know, through all the roller coasters, dot com, then the Lehman Brothers just collapse and, and just having to see you, you ground, being in ground zero. Yeah. For, I, I, I once joked, I mean, I graduated as a computer engineer in 01 when the dot com burst. And then I graduated from business school when the financial crisis hit. So if I go into law school, there's going to be a collapse of the government because every institution <laughs> I go into it ends up collapsing right after. Yeah, but um, but but you come out stronger. So yeah, good I, learnings. Yeah, you do well. So uh, so so I know you have a you know a, a different experience. You know you know uh, founding a company. So what was it like? It was in the early well mid two thousands. Yeah. So the, so my first try to start was actually in one when I was graduating from undergrad. Okay. And at the time, I, I was a computer engineer, so I built this all myself. It was uh, at the time it was called the wireless waitress, and the yeah. idea was that I, at the time, like, I, I, you know, I don't even remember Palm Pilots were very popular. Yeah. Uh, and the idea was like, oh no, it'd be great if people can go to restaurants and instead of ordering uh, with a waitress, you could have like a little Palm Pilot and you could order right on there and you can get reviews over that right food. I was like, oh, <laughs> million dollar idea. <laughs> um, build all the tech and then, you know, it would send wirelessly the orders to the kitchen. It was great. And then when we, you know, we decided we're like, okay, where are we going to do this? We're going to, oh, you know, I think the right approach is going to go into like franchises, like Fridays. And then when we started looking into financing, we're like, okay, we need like, you know, and at the time doing a startup was much more expensive than, you know, nowadays it's cheap. No, uh, I know because back then you needed servers, you needed actual computer, you needed everything like physical. You needed yeah. everything. It was hard. Um, but at the time, we're like, okay, we need $30 million. Oh. And we're like, okay, how do we do that? And then right then yeah. and there, the dot-com burst. And we're like, okay, this is not going anywhere. It's gone. Yeah. Um, uh, but then, um, and then I was, so I was at the hedge fund and I decided, you know, now I'm at a point, the financial crisis was there. I was like, I decided I was, I didn't see myself. I did love finance and investing. I just didn't see it as my passion. I just okay. didn't see myself, you know, 20 years on the line, like doing those models and recommendation for trades. I've always wanted to start my own company. Um, so the first company that I thought of, I just started really just interviewing everyone that I could, trying to think of ideas. Um, and one of the things that I noticed was that, you know, friends that had families, one of the problems that they had was coordinating their families on things to do. 
Um, so I started pursuing something for like a family calendar online, similar to what like people do, like they put the family calendar on a on a long dead refrigerator. On a, on a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then when I was doing that, I talked to a friend of mine and she was a divorced mom. And she told me, you know what? This sounds really interesting, but you think you could add a feature so that my ex-husband and I could coordinate things without talking to each other. So I was like, <laughs> oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea about it. Um, so I started building a company called Parenting Bridge um, and it ended up getting some traction. Um, so crazily, I launched it like the month that I got married. So kind of very different. Um, and about a year into it, I honestly just hated it. Uh, really? I was Why? not passionate about the market. Oh, I mean, most okay. of my, I, it, it was just depressing. I mean, it's, it was like, it was talking to clients and you talk to potential clients and they're like, I would never use your service because I don't want my ex-wife to be happy. And you're like, come on. It's just, wow. it, it is yeah. so, I mean, so my one, the one thing I really learned from that one is do something that you're passionate about because it's so hard. I mean, you're going to dedicate 24 hours to it. So yeah. you have to do something that you can be passionate. You're going to wake up and you're like, I want to do this. I'm ready to um, go. Yeah, but if it's something that you know it, it's gonna be like, wow, I don't want to do that. It's 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 doomed to fail. Man. Yeah, it just it, it it requires. I mean, the main quality that I think for starting a company, and no matter what it is, is grit. Man, Absolutely. waking up every day and going through the ups and downs because no matter what you're doing, from a taco stand to you know a big startup, you're gonna have good days and you're gonna have bad days. And in the bad days, you're gonna pick yourself up. Uh, you have to want it again. Go twice as hard. Yeah, yeah. No, I like it. So so what happened to Parenting Bridge? I mean, did, did, did you decide to just like, you know what, I'm, I'm getting some traction. Did you fund it yourself? or did, did... Yeah, that one was self-funded. I mean, it didn't take much money. I mean, uh, so I've been very big in general uh, of businesses that make money from the start. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I haven't had the vision of like a Facebook of like build something that 10 years on the line is going to be huge and make money then. <laughs> Um, I guess because of my finance background, for me, it's like, you know, I need money to come in if you're going to, you know, correct provide a service. So I've always, and, and at that time it was a subscription service. So early on, it was enough to like self-fund. Um, but and, uh, and this is before Google Calendar and, and, and your Calendly. Yeah, this is like early 2010s or. Yeah. I mean, there was a little bit of Google Calendar, but for coordination between parents, like, okay, who's got yeah. custody of this? Who's got custody of that? Who's going to take mm -hmm. care of the kid? For, for like picking them up and taking them to schools. It just didn't have the capability and also a way for parents, co-parents to share information. Okay. Um, and this is also pre-app pre world, wasn't it? Pre-app world. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So web-based. Yeah. 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 But uh, essentially, yeah, I woke up one day and I was like, I can't do this. I hated going to work uh, and doing it. So I <laughs> shut it down. I mean, uh, and um, and then I was at the time I was I moved to, from New York to San Francisco because my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, decided to go to business school at Stanford. So um, we were at the time she was about to graduate from uh, business school when we were actually at a party about a week before her graduation. And um, a bunch of her classmates were, you know, were at the party and they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I have tests all this week and I have to move out by the end of the week. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I'm not graduating. I just closed my company down. So I'm just going to like rent a, a pickup truck and like pick up everyone's stuff, store it, and then sell it to students in the fall. Okay. Um, and that was the initial idea for remove. Um, All right. It, yeah. Originally it was a way with the way I saw it. It was a, it was a broken market because you had sellers at the end of the semester and then, but no buyers because there was no new students and then buyers at the beginning of the following semester 
but you had that summer in between. So the gap, the yeah, that yeah. three-month gap. Exactly. Um, and then, um, so that's how we launched. We launched for the Stanford Business School and a Stanford Law and a little bit of the Stanford undergrads, and uh, it went well. Um, what, what, what year was that? Uh, 2014. Okay. Yeah. Um, Which is literally you and a U-Haul and a storage unit. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think it was good for keeping you in shape. I mean, hauling <laughs> like desks and mattresses down yeah. stairs. But um, so from there, we the plan was the following year to launch at many other universities. Uh, and uh, we're like, great. So we started planning towards that. And then the following year, as we were getting ready to launch at our second school, which was going to be Berkeley, I started looking at the market and I was like, you know what? This is just not big. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, but, you know, there's a lot of cyclicality in the student market and mostly students are pretty cheap. You know, they don't want to spend money on things. Yeah. Um, but we started getting uh, interest from people in Palo Alto where Stanford is located uh, asking us, you know what? You know, I'm not a student, but I'm moving out of my house. And I don't know what to do with my stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I started thinking and talking to potential clients. And that's when we realized kind of like the market uh, that we thought was underserved, which is how do people get rid of stuff? Um, yeah. And that's how Remove was born. Okay. So just to, if I want to move out or, or even not move out, like how do I get rid of my stuff? I, I mean, and I got a point in case. I want to give you an anecdote. You know, I also went to grad school, graduated in 2005. I came back from Italy with my wife and now a child. So we went to, we returned three uh, and we, we, we came up with suitcases. Uh, fast forward 12 years after that. And we have a, a garage full of shit. And I was like, how in, when did this happen? And like, we have a house that's full, a garage that's full and a storage unit. So I was like, whoa. And we're, I mean, we think of ourselves as non-materialistic. I mean, I, I don't buy my, 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 we're pretty, uh, conservative in our in, in our in our spending and and, and that, but you know we just accumulated crap. Yep, and, and the like, has made it a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. So, well, just to your point, it's like we, we went to a storage unit. Like, why do we have this thing? It's like, where do, I mean, we have toys that were never open, and it's just like, oh my gosh, we we gotta do something. So, between trips to Goodwill and that, but if I would have known about Remove, I, I mean, it would have sent me. Uh, you know, a, ha a huge hassle that, that was there for, for a couple of weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, so remove essentially is an all in, all in one upcycling service. Okay. What that means that we pick up anything that people want to sell, donate and dispose. That includes everything from like furniture, electronics, appliances. I mean, what we realized mm -hmm. early on in our process is that people wanted to be able to like Uber for getting rid of your crap. I want to yeah. click a button and, and, and it's not just the stuff that can be resold because that's not solving the problem. Mm -hmm. What about anything that can be donated? And what about the stuff that can be junk? I yeah. mean, now the users have really three ways in which they can deal with their stuff, which is the DIY. You know, you can post your stuff on Craigslist and deal with it. The challenge with that is that it's really time consuming. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you got to deal with all those, you know, random people. Uh, you know, it takes an average of four hours to sell an item online. So always think of, the value of your time. And I think people forget Absolutely. that a lot. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. And you have one item, you have a couch, you put it on there. Great. You know, you sell it, but now let's say you have 10 items. That's 40 hours of work. How mm -hmm. much is that a week of work worth to you? Um, so yeah. we, we essentially collect anything. So the, that's the first solution. The second solution is you put stuff in storage, which is why one out of every eight adults in the U S is a self storage unit in the U S. Uh, and what we call it is your tax on space. You know, you Absolutely. kind of play, 
Yeah, you delay that decision for later, you put it in there, you pay, you know, 100, 200 bucks a month for years. Your tax and consumption. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then the last one is you junk it all, which is bad for your pocket, bad for the economy and bad for the environment. Environment. Yeah, terrible. So that's no. where we moved us. I mean, we've uh, been around now, I guess, four years. Uh, we're based here in San Francisco and we essentially collect everything. Um, and then the stuff that's for recycle, we recycle. We try to do the responsible decommission, e-waste, metal waste, all that stuff. Then we work also with donation companies to get the stuff donated and we give the customer a donation receipt. And then finally, what's most unique is the resale side of those things, uh, where we build a lot of tech that allows us to very quickly process and price and sell inventory by integrating with other marketplaces. Oh, so so you actually have a marketplace. So so you're like you know you know this uh, service, but also have a marketplace to resell all these items. I thought you were using other platforms. Okay. Yeah. So we 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 have our own marketplace, but then we also integrate with other bar platforms because. You know, if you're selling a, a, a blouse, it's going to be through a different marketplace than if you're selling a sofa, which is different right. than if you're selling a guitar. So there's all these marketplaces that online already that exist that are focused. I mean, there's some marketplaces that are so focused on like Hello Kitty 1980s memorabilia. So there's yeah. marketplaces that are very focused on particular things that you as an end user, you don't connect with. You don't know. It would no. take an incredible amount of time. And and so so you guys curate that content. You 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 know you curate you know what content goes to what platform and well obviously for for your benefit. I mean you 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 gotta extract what you know somebody's junk is somebody else's treasure. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, and then people receive fifty percent of the resale value on anything we sell. The owner. Oh, okay. So so that was my next question. So how is the business model? So you know, do you charge in advance? So let's, let's say if I if I call you, Luis. I got a garage full of shit. I mean, you know, I, I want it out of my house. What do I do? Yeah. So and now because of COVID, we, we used to do some in-home consultations for large pickups, but with COVID, we're just on a virtual. And anyway, before that, even 95% of people, what they do is that they take photos of the items they want picked up. And it can okay. be everything. I mean, if it's like a closet full of clothing, you just take one picture of all the clothing. Or if you have like furniture, you take a picture of the sofa, a picture of a guitar, a picture of your treadmill. Um, and then you either text it to us or you upload it on our website. Okay. From there, you get back an estimate. And yeah, we charge a pickup fee that is based on the volume of the items collected. So we send a, a team of movers. We send a truck with two or three guys uh, to pick up all the stuff. Um, and then we charge a pickup fee that is based on the volume of how much we actually collect. And then from there, we uh, that's the upfront cost for the customer. And then the customer, anything that gets donated, the customer gets the donation receipts from the donation organizations. Yeah. And anything that gets resold, the owner gets 50% of all the resale value. So we have two revenue streams, 50% of the resale value and the pickup fee. And the pickup fee. Okay. No, and, and for me, it's just like one-stop shop. I don't have to do anything. You, you, you yeah. do all the work. <laughs> okay. So yeah. I, I love it. So uh, and it's just like to say, what, what what is the number one? Uh, opposing argument that you that you find like you, you know in, in our business like well I can do it better cheaper blah, blah you know so, yeah. so some people okay do do it do uh, it cheaper from, uh, from customers or investors uh, uh, customers first from customers? <laughs> the biggest one is some people that don't want to pay okay they're like especially in Silicon Valley like people got used to like everything being free and then like they're like well Google does this for free and they deliver for free and I'm like yeah I mean but Google is first of all they're worth trillions and second you don't understand that when something is free it just means that you are the product yeah i'm not yeah. monetizing your data i'm not monetizing any of this uh but i mean that's the biggest thing some people are like oh i don't want to pay for this but you'd be surprised how many times 
we send them an estimate and someone's like, you know what? I don't want to do this. I'm going to do them myself. And then like three days later, they're like, can I still schedule? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I, I can totally see that happen. Like once they start moving boxes and like, yeah, you know, this yep. is taking too much time. Like, I'll let you deal with that. And, and, and what about investors? What was the major pushback from that, that you've heard? Yeah. So the biggest pushback that we get is that we do have a very, even though we do have a lot of tech and everything we built is just, uh, it's to optimize and automate a lot of our operations in terms of like how we collect, process, and sell inventory. Um, we still have a physical component where we have a warehouse where we store the stuff and then we okay. have trucks. And for a lot of investors, that's like, you know, they want SaaS. They want a software that they can just, Click a button and it's national. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you have to find the right investment. And, and for anyone that's looking to like raise money, um, spend a lot of time figuring out like what investors are really going to like your business model and which ones are not. For us, for example, someone that, you know, invested in Facebook is probably going to be, they're looking at SaaS. But yeah. someone that invested in Uber, they're like, oh, this is interesting. You know, they have physical component. They expand city by city, which is similar to like an Uber or an Instacart. Correct. So pick your investors. Just do a lot of research because otherwise you you spend a lot of time with conversations that just are going to go nowhere. Okay. So 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 just under, so are you guys just on the Bay Area or how many cities do you serve right now? So, yeah. So we're in two markets right now. We're serving the Bay Area and also Phoenix. We launched Phoenix in July. And then okay. the plan is to next year open up a couple more markets and then, uh, you know, national expansion and hopefully well, international someday. Yeah, why, yeah, why not? I mean, but but why Phoenix? Phoenix, I mean, it just sounds so random, but there's yeah. got to be a back, back story here. Uh, so it's a few reasons. So the way I thought about it is, uh, first of all, it's geographically close. Uh, okay. And, you know, my idea was, you know, when we were thinking into doing it, you know, it was right pre-COVID. And, you know, my idea was that I was going to be traveling back and forth every week, every couple of weeks. So you wanted it to be close uh, just to make it a little easier. Um, and, um, you know, Phoenix was that. Phoenix is also a very fast growing urban uh, market. Okay. Uh, one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. over the past 10 years. Um, and also um, has one of our big demographics. So we work with clients that are, you know, some clients, some of our clients are 75% junk. Sometimes they're 100% super high in multi-million dollar states. Some of our clients are, you know, 30-year-olds that are moving into their first big house and, you know, having kids. And other times, a lot of our market is actually um, the baby boomers that are downsizing. Okay. Um, and uh, Phoenix has one of the largest populations, mm -hmm. actually out of the large metro areas, the largest like uh, baby boomer population. So we thought it was a good market for us. Um, and the other reason, the last reason was that Phoenix is, uh, not known as one of the big tech cities. And we, our concern was as we try to look into our next fundraising round next year, that if we did like New York, San Francisco, LA, uh, one of the questions that investors were going to have, we're going to have is how do we know your service really works in other markets, you know, in the rest of America, um, yeah. we thought that by doing Phoenix, we would kind of nip that question in the butt from the start. Okay. No, that makes sense. No, uh, and, and and I was going to say, well, because you know, there's other markets like Portland here. You know, it's it's, it's upcycling. It's it's soon. big, huh? Soon. Oh, soon. Okay, <laughs> I like to hear that because I, I could I could definitely see this uh, working with the Portland mantra. It's like you know, don't throw anything away, but also you know what? I I want to make it easier for for myself. I mean, we we got bad weather uh, most of the time. Uh, in, in the winter, so I, said, I don't want to be moving stuff right now when it's cold and wet outside. So, yeah. Uh, but no, no, no. That's that. That just clarifies. I mean, it absolutely makes sense. But I, um, 
and going again, you know, with the Phoenix, you know, what you were mentioning right now, just focusing on the baby boomer, which is, you know, one of the, uh, I, I can see it. It's, it's a larger demographic for you. That's going to continue to grow as we age. Uh, and, and it's very, um, it's very specific, but don't, you know, what, what we see is also the migration patterns specifically from California to, 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 to Arizona. Yeah. So is that something that you've also contemplated or that, that comes into play? We thought about it a little bit. I mean, because one of the interesting things for us is, you know, if, you know, if you're moving from California and you're getting rid of your stuff with us and then you're moving to Phoenix, you're probably going to get new stuff. And we also mm -hmm. have a presence there where, because as you know, everything we collect, we're reselling. Yeah. So it, it did allow some kind of like synergies there between the two markets. Uh, and, and at scale, that would be the ideal. I mean, because the dream would be is like every time you own something right now, when you buy something, you essentially own it for its life because it's such a pain to get rid of it. Uh, we're hoping to get to the point where like if it becomes seamless to really get rid of stuff, when you buy something, you're really just renting it. And then you go yeah. here, you use it, you give it to us, you, you know, you go, you go back to the next place, you get new stuff um, and then and, um, and making it easier for people to, you know, buy pre-owned. Um, I, I think it's an important, it's a great way to get value. It's kind of like just, you know, with a, so far a guitar is the same as a car, you know, as soon as you drive it up the lot, it's worth half the price. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So you can get great quality stuff that it's pre-owned and you do good for your pocket and you do good for the environment. And, and, and you know, you, you obviously have a lot of competition, you know, the Craigslist, Facebook, you know, going to seller markets, you know, same Amazon. Well, I don't know if Amazon sells pre-owned, quite honestly. But so um, how do you will justify or, you know, what, what what's your niche for the investor? It's like, look, you know, yeah, w there's all these other channels, but this is what we do where we fit differently. Yeah. So actually, a lot of those channels, uh, those, those channels, the DIY channels are also our partners. Okay. So we work with Facebook Marketplace, we work with Craigslist, eBay, uh, and all the like more niche ones as well. So it's interesting because for them, they're interested in working with us because as you, if you remember back in the day, I mean, and that's one of the things that I think is going to happen is you know when when eBay started, it was a C 2 C marketplace. Yeah. And then over time, it became a B 2 C. I mean, right now, eBay, all the sellers are companies, all the buyers are consumers. And most of those marketplaces, I'm, um, my thesis is that most of those marketplaces will become B2C as well. And I know some of the ones that we work with are already becoming in that direction, uh, and which makes sense because if you're you know, running a marketplace you, and, you have, and you're C2C, growing these two sites simultaneously is pretty difficult. So yes. by doing B2C, it becomes a lot easier to have a stable supply source than focusing on the other side of the marketplace. Yes. Um, no. So we work with them and it's, uh, I mean, Technically, they're somewhat competitive because it's a it's a substitute service, but it's not really competitive. I mean, more competitive could be either like a local consignment shop or a local mm -hmm. state liquidator or like a junk hauler. Uh, but our value is, you know, if you're comparing us to a junk hauler, um, which very few of our, I mean, only like 20% of our clients consider their stuff junk, um, then which they never use a junk hauler. But, um, you know, with us, you can get value back and possibly reduce your pickup fee as well. Um, and if you're con 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 comparing us with like a state liquidator, there's like a better way to state liquidate because you're bringing your stuff instead of fire, fire selling it locally yeah. for the weekend. We actually bring in a consignment. We professionally appraise it. We sell it nationally over an extended period of time. And it's a lot less work for you. Uh, but then, okay. and, but for a lot of our customers are more like, you know, you're 35 year old, you're moving to a new house or you're redecorating your house and you, you need to get rid of the old stuff. Um, it's like the one-stop solution. Oh, no, no, that's, that, that sounds Perfect. But, you know, 
uh, how 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 long is that uh, the time that you know your turnaround time between items? Do you have an average or because you know you have to hold that inventory and like you said you you have to store you store them have a warehouse and that costs money. So yeah, yeah I mean and, and one of the things that I when I started the company early on is that the pickup fee that we charge essentially makes it so that we can cover all the costs associated okay. with that particular pickup. For me, it was very important. I was not in the, you know, Silicon Valley of just lose money. You just grow. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was like, if you're providing a service, you should be able to like, you know, get the payment. If, if you have a real business, people have to be able to pay for that service because you're providing enough value. Correct. Uh, so for me, that was very important. And we have a fee that essentially covers those costs. But yeah, so we have a consignment period that ranges from 60 to 120 days. Uh, and it depends. There's there's algorithms that determine that how, how long and how quickly the price of an item changes depending on its size, value, style, all those things end up changing how fast something in order because we were trying to get stuff out, but also get fair market value for it. Correct. And, and for example, is that pricing fluctuating or is that a set price? Do you have algorithms that can move that price accordingly exactly. to market fluctuations or, or, or other data, you know, other parameters? That's exactly correct. Okay. So, so that's just part of your secret sauce. Yeah, exactly. And Not just having a standard size and, and waiting to see, well, it didn't move, then I'm going to manually change it. Like if, if I were to do it on, you know, on Craigslist. Oh uh, yeah. That's the biggest challenge is that you doing this, starting big on this is impossible uh, because unless you have the data to know what sells through what marketplace for what price. And this happened was early on. Luckily we were small where you end up with a warehouse full of junk and that's yeah. costly. And then you have to deal with all that stuff. So it's very, very hard to replicate this at scale unless you have all that data and the tech to process all that inventory quickly uh, so that you can get the stuff out. Okay. And that's something that you guys built in house. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Wow. No, that's fascinating. That, 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 that's huge because I, could, I can see this, you know, like you said, rolling out, you know, with a different business model, maybe like you said, maybe through an Uber. Uh, you know, city by city where other people do that, you know, the consignment, the pickup, and all you do is just provide the the, the, the software engine behind that. Exactly. So is, yeah. that, is that where you get, well, and, and let's talk about funding. So, so I, I, how, how did you start the company? You, well, you started on your own with a pit, with a, with a U-Haul and, and a little warehouse storage yeah. unit uh, out of your pocket. How, how was that process? And then you decided like, you know what, there's something here and I'm going to start making the numbers. What, what was that process? So yeah, so that early test when we did at Stanford, that was essentially, I mean, it self-funded itself because all I really needed, I'd rented a self-storage unit and like public storage. And then I rented a U-Haul, you know, $19, whatever, and then plus miles. Uh, but we, it, it was small enough that with the stuff that was coming in, we were able to kind of self-funded and it was, you know, it cost probably upfront like $300 or something. Okay. Um, and then uh, the following year, we, 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 when we started looking into actually expanding, uh, we actually participated in one of the accelerators. So we got a little bit, we got like $75,000 from them. And that started getting the things going. And then over the next few years, we really bootstrapped. Uh, so it, it was, uh, we had very little cash. And every single time we needed to like make payroll, I would go out and try to find an investor to put in like 25,000. And that's how we bootstrapped early on. I mean, I, my, what I wanted to avoid, and I saw many startups in Silicon Valley that, especially startups kind of like with a similar operational model to us, uh, you know, that they had a physical component to them. A lot of times they, I thought they raised money before they had figured out their unit economics. Okay. And when you scale something with bad unit economics, it just burns cash. Mm -hmm. And that's bad. 
Um, and a lot of them failed very quickly. I mean, a few companies raised $40, $50 million, and within a year, they were down. Gone, yeah. Um, so we wanted to bootstrap and really figure out our unit economics before we expanded. So we spent, and really building the tech that it would allow us to have the right unit economics. And then uh, finally, last year, we broke even. Uh, last summer, we had broken even at the company level. So we were finally a little bit profitable. So we raised our first institutional round. We raised a million and a half from uh, some investors. Um, Congrats. And then, uh, so in total, we raised about 2.7 to date uh, with all the little checks up to that point. And then we started expanding into our next market. So now we're like, okay, we have the right unit economics. We have the tech. Now's the time to figure out how do we scale this? Uh, and okay. that's where we are now as a company. Then obviously we were launching Phoenix, COVID hit and kind of threw a wrench on the whole thing. Uh, but we've been growing. I mean, with even pre-COVID, we are from right before COVID to now, we're up like 90%. Wow. Um, Holy smokes. For a year, we're up 130%. Uh, and growing, we're launching. Right now, raising an extension round so that we can uh, get to the point where we can uh, race Series A next year. Oh, that's fantastic. That is, congratulations. I'm, you know, very impressed, man. It was like, and, and this is one of the good stories about, you know, COVID is like, I'm sure, you know, it, it shook us all, all often, but, you know, you got to worry. So, okay. Yeah. This COVID has been crazy. I mean, because I remember when COVID started happening and we started getting the lockdowns here in California, like suddenly I'm like, I was talking to like our head of operations and I'm like, what do we do? And I realized that I started having to make these decisions about people's lives and how do we operate during this outbreak. And I'm like, I'm not prepared for this. I mean, I'm, how can I be? The, I'm used to like someone telling me, getting me an email. It's like, okay, this is what the company is going to do for this crisis. And suddenly we're like, it's you. You have to be the one making these decisions. It's scary. But you do it. You know, yeah. you figure out that everyone else that makes yeah. decisions about your companies is just like you. They're, you know, making decisions on a whim and with the best the available information and trying to make Yeah. Oh my gosh, that that is that is remarkable. So so you guys have been able to to stay you know stay open obviously because you know it's uh, it's considered an essential business, isn't it? Yeah. So we've uh, pre-COVID, we were about ninety-five percent of our business was actually residential. So it was people that were redecorating their houses, moving people that were shutting down storage units, um, and then relocating, downsizing, and then with COVID, like the residential side started coming down. Okay. I mean, we, we shut down for two months or like a month and a half while we figured out how do we actually operate safely for the employees and for the clients. Uh, but then we started started operating again. I mean, the residential side came up, but not to, like it was before. But an interesting thing happened where uh, the, the corporate or the business side started the growing. The commercial, yes. Yeah. And that's been a huge boom for businesses, which is businesses, offices that are closing or businesses that have to like downsize or a lot of corporate apartments. So we've yeah. been uh, at the forefront of that. And then another thing that's been happening for us is um, one of the things we realized is that a lot of companies, especially larger companies are very focused on sustainability and they wanna figure out ways in which whenever uh, they're redoing their offices or moving into new office spaces, they don't wanna mm -hmm. create as much waste. So we've been, we're becoming a partner for those companies and we're talking to some of the really large ones, which is the reason we're trying to do an extension round so that whenever whenever they're operating in the daily operations, we come and become a partner that's more sustainable for their operations. I see. No, and, and that's a good point. You know, now that you're mentioning, you know, because we know a lot of people that shut down their offices here and well everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm imagining supply and demand. You know, you know, it, it, you know, basic economics. What does that do to the pricing? You know, and 
chairs. I mean, did, did we all of a sudden see a flood of office chairs? We did. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing is that then you had a, a, a huge demand of home offices. Oh, so that's like, true. Like, <laughs> like standing desks, we can't hold them. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. No, that that that's. I mean, I ha I have mine here in my in my house. Yeah. Uh, I had to bring it to the office, but no. But that, that, so so everything compensated. Yeah, I mean, and some stuff. Yeah, there was an oversupply, so prices adjust. You know, that's the beauty of the market. You know, you find a clear price for things, and they move. Um, and uh, hopefully, we find a new home, and you know, some stuff goes up in price, and I mean, like standing desk and other stuff. You know, went down, and but usually there's a, a balance that happens so that you find a clear price for things. Okay. No, that is. <laughs> I mean, what a year, isn't it? 2020. What a year! But it, it, I mean, it, it started. I mean, ho hopefully, we we understand that we need to stay put for a little while longer, and so we can come out of this stronger. And and coming with that, how do you envision next year? And actually, you know, post pandemic. Yeah. So it's an interesting question. I mean, I do think now that there's a lot of pent up demand um, in, in the Bay Area itself. Eh, I do wonder whether people are going to be able to stay working from home long term. I think people like it, uh, but I just <laughs> I, I think that for larger companies in terms of like creativity and the magic that happens when people that you know that water the water cooler conversation. Yes, it's hard to do over Zoom. Um, it, it's hard to build. I mean, we've hired several people over the past few months, and I've never met them in person. And it, it's hard. How do you? It's build not the same. Home? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I do think that a lot of that, it will come back. Um, I mean, there might be things where like, you know, maybe you can work, you know, part-time remote and part-time at the office a little bit more, but I don't see the full-time staying on long-term. It's just, it's, it's just hard. It, it's it hard. is hard. Yeah. And imagine, I mean, imagine you're a 22 year old and then you go work in this office. I mean, the mentorship that you would get from like the day and listening to everyone around you, um, the connection that you make, it's, you, you lose all that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you. I don't think this is going to be even with the company that say, well, we're shut down permanently. You don't have to come or you, you can work remotely. I mean, people will go back. I mean, you, you can't do this forever. I mean, it's it's great for a little while, but it's like I don't want to be in my house every day, every single day with all these people that, you know, that live around here and demand things all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So. No, but it's great, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm happy for you guys. So, uh, you know, so, so for you, next year is, you know, scaling and into 2022 and, and on. It's just like taking it here nationally. What, what, do you, what do you think are the, the, the steps that you need to take right now to get it, you know, get it set for, for when we, we're out of this tunnel? Yeah. So for us right now is that I think it's continue to build the tech that we're building for like automation. Uh, I think we have an operational model that we know how to scale very well. Right now, as a company, where where we are now is trying to figure out we our marketing strategy in the Bay Area works. Now we're at a spot where we're like, okay, what is a marketing strategy for scaling new markets? Because then okay. after that is, you know, the idea is you do that, then you prove it one more time, and then you go to investors and say, you know what? Look at me. Uh, we've done this three times. We know how to do it. We know that it takes X number of months to launch a market, X amount of capital. And within a year, we can get this company, you know, this market generated X amount of revenue, you know, give us, you know, $10 million, $50 million. We're going to do this 30 times over. Yeah. And copy uh, paste. And here's your formula. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what we need to get the next step. Um, it's, it's hard. And especially 
you know, now with COVID not being able to go to like our new warehouse and our new market and being there and actually help and know what are the, being there to see what's happening because you have to see it a lot of times to like really feel what is going on to like get a, to get that gut feeling of what's working and what's not working and remotely is hard. Uh, but, you know, this is the cards you're dealt and you deal with them. Exactly. I mean, we got to adapt for now, and we know that hopefully it's temporary. We, we know that yeah. there's there's help. You know, we we will get through this, but in the meantime, we, we we just can't be you know taking this for granted. Yeah. And like you said, just just take the punches and roll with them. Yeah, I mean that is yeah. So that that is one thing as a for an entrepreneur, like I mentioned it before, is just grit. You're gonna get punches every single day. It's our emotional roller coaster. So get ready for that, uh, and just you know. Some 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 days you're gonna feel so. Temper your feelings when when they get really high, and yeah. you know check yourself also when it gets really low, uh, because riding that roller coaster is the hardest thing. And uh, I mean, I, I was originally I had started the company with a friend, and then we separated friendly, but it helped me early on to like ride that roller coaster, you know, or be very you know open with your partner so that they can help you and someone that can be there for like you know keep you, you know, bring you up when you're down and, you know, keep you relaxed when you're up because it's going to move. It, it is going to move. And, and, and if there's good times all the time, be suspicious because you're either not pushing too hard or something's coming. I, I, I always figure out like if, when, when times are bad, it's like, oh my gosh, when is this going to come out? Because it's one after the other. It, it feels like that sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And then when, you, when you're coasting, you're like, hmm, what's going on? <laughs> it's just like, yeah. I, don't, I don't trust this feeling. I agree. <laughs> I completely agree. So, Luis, hey, anything else that we can do? You know, wh wh how can we help remove it? Uh, for me, I mean, if if you're in the Bay Area, you like moving, we're looking for to hire people. If uh, you need to get rid of stuff, look us up. We're here to help. Um, you know, give us a shout out. But uh, more importantly, is I mean, if you know someone that's starting a company, uh, be there to support them. It is hard. Oh. It is yes. really, really hard. And you'd be surprised sometimes how, you know, and if you, and if you're starting a company, ask for help because you'd be surprised how sometimes when you're really small, one connection, one conversation can really change the course for that company. Um, so ask for help and be help and, and, and be helpful. Um, and it's amazing how like, you know, when you're just asking people like, Hey, you know, like my tweet or like my, my, it can really help because when you're a company, you're just like looking for some kind of like validation because yes. you want other people to say like, this is real. And like, you know, if you have like a little, little thing that can mean a lot and that can give you like, Oh, people see like, Oh, this company is for real and they'll start using it. And that kind of brings that snowball effect. Um, and uh, if you, and I'm a very big believer in reciprocity. So ask for help and offer help because it's it's very serendipitous how like one little connection, one little conversation, one little can really change the course for a small entrepreneur. So totally, um, I, I'm there with you. And you know what? It's probably one of my faults that I, I, you know, like we created this forum. It's not for us. It's because I'm 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 an introvert. I don't like my face posted. But yeah, two two th almost three years ago, I got pushed by my they're like let's do it. Like yeah, why not? We, we had no guidance, but. When it was like, this is for you guys. This is for all of us because it, it, this is not my show or anyone's show. This is our show. Like we, we want to share the stories, but you know that's you know, and I don't know. A lot of our faults is like we don't ask. You know, I love to give it, but when it comes to like, oh, I don't want to ask. You know, at least that's 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 been one of my ma majors that I'm working to like raise my hand when when I need it. Yeah, 
I mean, and if one thing that worked for us really well is that one of our investors in the seed round was a syndicate, meaning it was okay. a fund that gets a lot of people to invest in it and small checks. Um, and uh, through that, I mean, originally I was like, oh my God, this is going to be horrible because now I'm going to have all these random questions from like little investors. And it was exactly the opposite. I mean, you know, I've sent out questions. I'm like, oh, I need a connection to this company. I'm looking for this type of investor. And, and like almost everyone's almost like, I'll do it. I'll help. I'll help. And it's been, That's great. it's really, really helped us. So, and so every time I send like a monthly, like investor update and I always put at the end and ask. Um, yes. And it's, okay. it's really, really helpful. And it's, it's helped me a lot. And um, I would encourage people to do it. Don't be afraid to ask. I know, but you know, we have a very machista, the, you know, you go ahead, I do it myself. Uh, don't be humble and ask for help uh, because it's, it's a lonely road, no matter it what is. you're doing. So um, get those around you to support you because we right. want to, I want to support my friends. I want to support my community. I love it. So, so where do we find you in social media? Yeah. So I'm on everything from LinkedIn to, you know, uh, what is it? Twitter and Facebook. And then the company, obviously, where it's Remove. Um, and then we also have our online store. So if you're in the Bay Area or Phoenix and you're looking for quality pre-owned stuff, it's called uh, The Local Flea. The Local uh, Flea. Okay. Yeah, it's honestly now what my, my one of the scary things I my, my wife loves it now and now at least now she's buying from us. Uh, but uh, it, <laughs> so you see, they say the things coming into your warehouse into your house. All right. Yep. <laughs> it's a full circle. Love it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's where we are on social media. And if I, if I can ever be of help, uh, send me an email. Luis at removeit.com. Um, happy to help. You know. Okay, Luis. Encantado de tenerte aquí. Ojalá pronto nos podamos comer unas arepas por allá o por acá. Te invitamos a Portland cuando cuando quieras venir por aquí. Está la casa abierta. Muchísimas gracias igualmente. Te lo agradezco y en lo que pueda ayudar siempre y suerte a todos. Muchísimas gracias. Muchísimas gracias. Latino Founder Hour, episodio 140. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.